HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. I'm HRN's Communication Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of the next episode of Meat and 3, our weekly food news roundup. We're exploring the future of eating animals, and we're going beyond typical meat sources. If you look at the length of human history, we've been eating insects a lot longer than we haven't been in the United States and Western Europe. We're looking at unusual ways to purchase meat. People are like, really? Why would I want to buy that out of a machine? And we introduce you to Frank Reese, a poultry farmer whose traditional farming methods are featured in a new documentary. I'm a fourth-generation farmer in Kansas, and I focus basically all on standard-bred poultry and have my whole life. He's kind of the last one standing with these rarefied breeds that are so important for if we're going to eat chicken and turkey into the future. He's essential. He's a national treasure. Listen to Meat and 3 this week to better understand the history and the future of meat. Available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week, I interview someone who works behind the scenes in the world of hospitality on their wiggly, sometimes tortured, sometimes delightful path to having career success. If you like what you hear and you want more inspiration and real-life examples of how people find the place that's right for them, subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or Stitcher or listen right here on Heritage Radio Network. My guest today is someone who is a partner in one of the hottest concept design and branding studios around. Her route to this incredible career took turns through interning at fashion houses, working with a disruptive Paris-based food guide, and more. Listen in for news from the forefront of design, food, art, and culture, and stories about personal growth. My guest today is Anna Polanski. She's the co-founder of MP Shift. She and her partner, Amy Morris, were on the Forbes 30 Under 30 list, and this past year, they won the James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant Design. They've designed everything from a Google Translate pop-up to De Maria, 
and recently Takasina, which um, I love Takasina. I'm going this afternoon with my daughter, in fact, um, that just opened from uh, Union Square Hospitality Group. So welcome, Anna. Hi, thank you for having me. So, so I have so many. We were talking a little bit before we went on air. I'm like, I have one question for you. But actually, like, I have a million questions for you. Um, it's fantastic that you and your partner, Amy, won uh, the James Beard Award for Outstanding Restaurant Design. But in a way, I felt like that's giving an award to such a small piece of what you do, what the your company is about, and what the two of you really hope to accomplish in this world. So... Congratulations on it, but I want to know. I want to know so much more. Um, it seems like your goal was to have a holistic, a, a holistic approach to any type of brand that you take on. And one of the reasons it seems like you're so perfect for that job is in fact, the wiggly path that you've taken here, because it's not like you woke up one day and you said, I'm going to do branding concepts for restaurants. Your mind is filled with creative things, I think almost from birth. Um, and you were born in Paris, which is a great place to have um, <laughs> creativity fill your mind. So I just wanted you to take us back to, um, to your childhood and being surrounded by some of the world's greatest chefs and, and how you know that beginning may have informed some of the terrific work that you're doing now. All right. <laughs> so going back 30 years. Yeah, that's um, not that far, really, <laughs> for some of us. So, yeah. So I grew up in Paris um, in a family that loves food, is obsessed with food. Um, what we were talking about a little bit is my dad is an incredible cook and has always taken me to the most amazing markets and bistros and you know, food purveyors. Um, he has a supper club in Paris called Académie des Placanailles, which celebrates the, the bistro kind of cuisine. Um, so I, I grew up with this, but also um, my aunt and uncle um, used to run Bragar, which produces uniforms for a lot of the Michelin star chef around the world. Uh, my cousin still does that in the U.S. And so through them, I had access to Paul Bocuse and this whole other world of food that was much more fine dining. So um, Paul Bocuse, one of the greatest lights in all of cuisine in all of time, do you have any funny memories of spending time with him that is just seared in your brain? I mean, I wouldn't have one story in particular, but what's funny is that so later in life, I worked with Le Fooding, which she's which was known to be the anti-Michelin, at least in the philosophy. Um, so you would think Bocuse is not a, a reference for me, but it's actually a, a huge reference for me. And I talk about it in a lot of client meetings because to me, he was fine dining, but it was also always super generous and very sensual food. Um, and I think that's today what we've lost a lot in fine dining. And so I, I really hope a lot of clients go back to that generosity and, and this bon vivant type of relationship to food. So let's talk about, um, you know, the more uh, intellectual end of dining. Like, what is your opinion of uh, kind of food that veers in that direction? About fine dining. Yeah. I think, uh, I feel like it's like in fashion and everything, you have moments um, and trends. And so the past 10 years, we've talked a lot about bistronomy and the end of fine dining. But I do see fine dining be making a comeback. Um, I think 
some people are missing the, the top-notch service and hospitality, and I think overall a lot of people want to feel like they're being taken care of a bit more. Um, and so I feel like new formats are going to emerge in the fine dining sector. I feel like Stone Barns has been doing it really well for years. It is excellent and incredible, but it is more approachable and connected to reality. Um, I was talking with a, an incredible baker recently who's going to open an Italian fine dining. Um, and he was saying everything's going to be a la carte, you know, something you would have never seen in a fine dining. So, yeah, I think the way fine dining has been stuck for decades is stupid, but I think the way <laughs> it's going to be reinvented is Wait, really but What's the awesome. stupid part? And then what are the new formats that you see? Well, I think, and that goes for Michelin restaurant as much as for 50 best restaurants for me, is this idea that fine dining needs to be a long tasting menu with expensive ingredients and, you know, too much staff to be sustainable. I just don't think it's sustainable for the restaurant as a business. I don't think it matches our habits anymore. Um, and so what are the new formats? I think more flexibility. Um, different tasting menus, I like out options. Um, I What's think a different tasting menu? Because I happen to loathe the tasting menu. Like I'm, I really, I feel like I'm a butterfly pinned to my restaurant chair. Yeah, well, for instance, in Paris, we worked a little bit with a chef called uh, Claude Colliot. He doesn't have a really fine dining restaurant, but what he, the quality he delivers is to me at a fine dining level. And he recently introduced a tasting menu that's all family style. And that wow. blew my mind. I was <laughs> like, amazing. it's such an obvious thing to do. No one's done it. And everything was incredible. But the fact that you were sharing with people, you know, at the end was an incredible bomb of ice cream and everyone was just putting the spoon in the, in the salad bowl. I was like, wow, that changes the whole experience. And then I guess the question is like, what is the definition of fine dining? Um, sometimes fine dining is defined by hospitality, sometimes by price, sometimes by formality. And so much of that has broken down. Um, yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I do think that now all the codes are being mixed and bistronomy was great for that. It, you know, brought great quality at a more accessible price. Um, so yeah, what is fine dining today? I feel like it's probably more chef driven than, than other formats. And there is more this idea of creating a whole experience. <clears throat> it's more of a journey. Right. I mean, that that is exactly the point, right? I know that in your work, you're interested in um, telling a whole story from, you know, uh, and every part of the experience from the menu, the food, the, every part of the design, but execution and philosophy. Uh, and certainly that's why chefs in theory do tasting menus because they want to tell you their story. And it's like, you can't have a chapter book and miss chapter three and chapter seven because you've lost the story. Right. But I would say, you know, even in literature, we can skip around a little bit. I like skipping to the end, for example, yeah. sometimes. And I don't think there's anything wrong with tasting menus per se. I think the problem is that there's been one approach to tasting menus for decades. And so it's interesting to see people like Dan Barber <clears throat> saying, you know what, no more written menus. I'll just serve whatever I'm cooking today. And to have people like Claude Collio saying, I have, to me, it should be family style. You know, this is exciting to me. I find that incredibly, I mean, Goosebump exciting to have the <laughs> I do because I think that just seems like it would be fun, more convivial, less formal. Um, let's talk about astronomy for a minute because uh, it is at the heart of something that your um, father obviously cares a lot about. It's something that um, was important in, in some way to the fooding, which is uh, where you spent seven years, which is a lot of time. <laughs> um, and so I want to know when you were there, the idea was to disrupt. 
um, Michelin, as you say, sort of the the anti-Michelin, and um, reward a new type of dining. And and now you're saying, you know, we're like at the tail end of that. Do you want to just talk about what it was like at the beginning? Because you were there. Were you there, I feel like, at the relative beginning? I wasn't there at the beginning. Um, Alex, uh, Alexandre and Marine started it um, eight years before I started. Yeah. Um, I would say I arrived at the beginning of a new phase where they were really full steam ahead, expanding, and they were starting to be taken seriously. Um, Not quite yet. I mean, I was studying at Sciences Po at the time, which is like the... Colombia or Harvard of France and all my uh, all my friends were going to go work at L'Oréal and LVMH and when I told my professors I was going to Le Fooding which was a little food block at the time <laughs> they were like okay not a good strategy but yeah so I was lucky to arrive at a time where wait I'm curious about that because so many people get such strong advice and they have to counter it in their lives so was it hard with all your friends you know going to these very glamorous sounding jobs maybe they were terrible when they did them <laughs> but they were glamorous and you know good to tell your friends and family was it hard to say I want to go do this other thing I think what was great is I was still studying when I started to intern at Le Fooding so initially people didn't stop me entirely because they thought that was like a fun hobby uh-huh. or summer job on the <laughs> side um, and again luckily a couple of years in the Le Fooding started to really explode and work in America and all over um, did you know that did you have a sense when you were there, that this could be something pretty big? Yeah, I don't think I articulated clearly in my head, but I really had faith in Alex and Marine, and, and their approach to food was so relevant and meaningful. And So just was... describe that to people who don't know. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Le Fooding was one of the first movements um, in recent decades that challenged um, the, conce- the preconception of good food, what good food should be. So before Le Fooding, the Michelin was really the guy defining what good food should be. And traditionally, good food was on a white tablecloth in a fancy restaurant eating lobster and caviar and it had to be expensive and so only 60 year old plus people could enjoy good <laughs> food um, Le Fooding was one of the first I mean I think Alex was 26 when he started it something like that and he was like this is ridiculous I mean those restaurants can be amazing but also a little farm in the country can be amazing and a pizza truck can be amazing so who gets to define that and so they started this guide which was revolutionary I think in different ways first of all because there was no rating system. No one had done that in a guide. So when you remove the stars and the grades, I mean, you, the you know the door is open to so much more. Um, and also they mixed in food writing with incredible graphic design and later on incredible food events. So it made it more approachable. I thought. I mean, I still have the zine that was created for Le Fooding in New York when you were first here because it was so like rough, raw beautiful, inspiring. I just like <laughs> kept it as a piece of like inspiration from the food world, something that I hadn't seen before. Nice. It was, um, it was exciting to, you know, have something turned upside down that way. So, um, part of it was honoring, um, restaurants and chefs who are sort of firebrands and breaking the mold. Yeah, absolutely. They broke them all. And so, yeah, that was through disruptive media. Um, the the events were really disruptive. I mean, they're not, the footing is, is almost 20 years. I mean, it seems everyone's now doing chefs and music and, and fun parties, but... You know, when they started, no one was doing that. I think the first recruiting event, um, Marine was incredible at producing all these, um, was having Michelin star chefs serving soups in the streets, like popular soup. 
That now seems fun, but at the time that was just groundbreaking. Um, it is. I mean, I'm I'm dwelling on it a little bit because I think it's historically fascinating. You know, um, you did a mass picnic um, in the parks, and you had chefs from um, France come and cook with chefs from America, and built these bridges that really hadn't been built before. And you're right. You look at it now, and you're like, well, of course chefs are doing picnics in the park. Like, yeah. that's what everybody does. And every, you know, every fashion brand wants to do something like that. But I feel like Le Fooding was not only sort of like ahead of its time, but really ahead of its time in America. So when you came and did that, like it was breaking the mold in, in France where things, of course, are accepted to be somewhat traditional. So breaking is very obvious. But in America, the ideas were also, you know, flexible and we're open to new ideas, but we're not really. Right. And so this was very new. It's good to hear that. I mean, it's funny, my partner, Amy, you know, we've been friends for over 10 years now. She always said that when she met me and I was... Um, helping to bring the fooding here she was kind of like good luck honey I mean, we have so many food events and food media what are you going to do and it ended up being this overwhelming success and that's how we started the company here full-time but yeah I think the fooding has kept being relevant because they don't want to um, register to any movement sometimes they work with mission chefs sometimes they work with wine bars people sometimes it's a food stall from Lebanon and I think that's what makes it really interesting is to just see food as an interesting medium no matter what the movement or the school um, and they've created the words to talk about it bistronomy is invented by Le Fooding um, Cave à manger this like new generation of wine bar that came you know through Le Fooding so by also inventing the vocabulary it just gave a platform to a lot more chefs I did not real. I knew. I did not know that they had um, invented the Cava Manger, which is basically um, a new wave wine bar. And you've made recommendations of amazing um, wine bars in Paris and in New York, and I imagine around the country. Although I'm not quite as familiar. There are now all these in a new wave of wine bars based on the French models. You want to talk about some of your favorites in Paris and like what that meant in translation here? Yeah. Um... I mean, I think everyone knows I'm a big fan of La Buvette <laughs> in Paris. Um, Camille is now a good friend, but I just um, I just find her fantastic because it's... What's her full... I don't know. So, la, yeah, so, la, so Camille Fourmont is her name. La Buvette is this little 12-seat wine bar slash wine shop. It's incredibly authentic. It's literally just her behind the counter selling wine, making little plates of food. What's interesting is that she's not a chef. She used to work at Le Dauphin, but never cooked. Um, but because of a license problem, she, ha she was forced to serve food. So she was like, what am I going to do? And she created this menu that's now all over Instagram that's really just assemblage, but it's beautiful. She'll just um, dry fruit skin in her heater in her apartment and like serve a little powder on a burrata. Everything's just DIY. And it's incredible. Um, but on the other end, I think she understands branding and marketing really well in her own way, in a French way. Uh -huh. um, well, what does that mean? Because I'm, I'm fascinated by that and we're going to get to that yeah. later. So stick around, people. But no, I'd love to know, what does that mean to you? Totally. Well, I mean, that's, that's also why I talk about her. I think um, often people think, well, French people hate marketing and America is way too marketed. But I think, and that's what Amy and I try to do every day, there is a... a good compromise um and so i think amy is on the one hand very authentic she 
design everything herself. It's her food. It's it's really personal. But also, she's not completely anti-publicity. Or, or And I think she's created a brand. You know, every year she organizes this beautiful tasting event with all the most amazing natural wine um, producer. And she'll create those awesome jackets and bags. Um, beautiful handmade invite that she mail herself to everyone. She doesn't have to do this. She could just do an Instagram post. But she understands that having a, a consistent brand identity and message really helps. Um, that's just one example. She does a lot of, you know, she'll do fun collaboration. She'll bring Michon Chinese to do a little small plates in, in the wine bar. A lot of French people traditionally have been against that because they're like, we're not a brand, we're a food place. If the food's good, that's all that matters. Um, but I think more and more Paris is changing and it's great to have people like her doing it the right way. Do you think that the time will run out on this um, collaborate on everything, swag for everything moment? <laughs> Um, I hope it doesn't. I think collaboration is so really fun. fun. I think, again, as long as it's done authentically and not just the, the cliches of what design should be, I think it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> um, and in New York, is there, um, or America, is there a cava manger that you think has gotten it right? Like, It's hard. I think uh, we were talking about that with Amy. I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to happen soon. I think for some reason it hasn't happened yet, probably because wine wasn't such a big thing until recently in America. I mean, I remember when I moved here 10 years ago, all my best friends in the industry were drinking cocktails with their, with their meals. Yeah. So it's quite new. Um, Did that offend your French heart? <laughs> yes, I did. Yeah, it was a little like, really? Um, but, you know, I did learn a lot about cocktails since I'm here, so yeah. it's a win-win. Um, but, yeah, I think... That was so what's, such a what's thing. missing them? Because you're saying that it's not quite here. What's I missing? think the format was different because I think there's been a fear that New Yorkers wouldn't really like that Paris format. And by that, I mean not having set seatings, maybe come in and just having to wait standing for an hour. But maybe a guy will come and like pour from a magnum and it's very informal and you might be forced to talk with your neighbors. And, you know, it's much more messy and mm -hmm. uncomfortable. Uh, but that's what makes it really electric in Paris or in Barcelona or in London at places like P. Franco. So I feel like New Yorkers have been scared to do this. Um, and also, I think the fear of simplicity. Most times those places are run by wine people who don't cook, as I was explaining. So the food's really simple and amazing. It's like an incredible ham and beautiful pickled vegetables. I think historically people have been scared in New York that it would just disappoint the clientele. And it's changing just because everyone's traveling. Younger and younger people are spending money going out, uh, so they're open to those formats. Um, it's exciting. I think the other thing that's interesting about that is probably the intersection of uh, cost in New York and simplicity, right? So maybe you can do something super simple if you have a tiny, the thinking might go. If you have, um, you know, a simple wine bar, but when you have staff to pay, although, you know, Do you have to have staff? Right? It's such a big question right now. Yeah. Like, what's the role of staff? That's changing. I think Achilles Hill has probably done it really smartly. They're probably the closest to a French cabaret manger. I mean, Lilef, I think, now the current chef's great as well. But just having one or two people with a hot plate yeah. doing stuff, two people behind the bar serving wine, that was great. Um, I think places like Servos or Hemlock are getting a little closer into that format. Uh -huh. I, I know you're a fan. <laughs> um, and... When you were saying that they identified that Lefouding, back to that, identified um, bistronomie, gave it a name, Cava Manger, gave it a name. And do you feel like there's something else that they're noodling on, you know, thinking about and um, 
talking about that we should talk about? Well, funny enough, I feel like French people are going to struggle to define all day cafes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's something Amy and I have become uh, famous for the all day cafe trends. And we helped Echo in Paris open. It's one of the first so-called all-day cafes, one of the sous-chefs from Giusta uh, opened this with Mathias, <coughs> a French owner. Um, and I think it's and really sorry, hard for... The, what is the name of the place that you... It's called opened? Echo. Echo. And so it's re- it, they're the first to do this new LA type of food inspired by Squirrel and Giusta. Um, and it's funny, it, it's an incredible buzz in Paris. People are loving it, but they're quite, they understand it's not a cafe in the Parisian way. And some people will say, well, we've always had cafes. What is an all day cafe? Um, but they also see that it's different what's happening there in California and at Echo. So. And so, what's the, what is the food? I mean, is it uh, it's simplicity again, I imagine? It's actually, I think it looks simple, but it's quite complex. What you would eat at Squirrel and Justa is very LA in the sense that there is this really international pantry, you know, some Mexican inspiration, some Korean inspiration, incredible spices from around the world. But the the plating is very visual, but very simple. They just say they're going to serve you a, a toast and a salad and a smoothie, but it's much more complex than it seems. I'm curious what you think of the uh, globalism. You live a somewhat global life, right? You grew up in um, Paris. You've worked in London. Um, you live in New York. Your husband's Argentinian. Um, so it's a terrible moment for the globe, at least living in New York. Yeah. I'm wondering, um, do you feel like food can solve that? What do you think the role of food in... Yeah, it's, uh, we think about it a lot with Amy. I mean, we, we're, we're still trying to figure out how we can contribute to the debates. One obvious thing is just push forward uh, people from minorities. I mean, it, you know, black chefs, we only talk about Marcus Samuelson and now J.J. Johnson. J.J. is great, but what, where are the others? Um, and I feel like then they're always hired as being the black chef. So... Now, you know, we sometimes do curation for brands like the Google event or we'll do food and beverage concepts for hotels. We really try to think about diversity uh, as much as we can. And I know that you, um, in doing Rockaway Taco, which was a huge success, you know, you <laughs> launched with um, Latin and Latin um, flavors and Latin chefs, which is also part of this conversation. I mean, it begins to feel very binary, but it's not a binary choice. It's not like white people and black people it's no you know it's it's a so it's much really, more complex <laughs> it's so much more complex um okay well we're gonna take a um a quick break and when we come back i want to talk about um mp shift and your amazing work there with your uh, partner amy morris stay tuned we'll be right back what it takes to swim a coastline longer than the entire eastern seaboard and leap tall waterfalls in a single bound? What does it take to survive 200 feet deep in icy saltwater? What would you be made of? Wild Alaska seafood is made of tight muscle mass, long chain omega-3s, and incredible micronutrients. It matters where your food comes from. Experience the flavor of the fittest in every bite and enjoy food the way nature intended. Alaska Seafood, wild, natural, and sustainable. 
Ask for Alaska on the menu, grocery store, or smart device. For more information, visit wildalaskaseafood.com. Hey, this is Michael Harlan Turkel from the Food Scene on Heritage Radio Network. I've been with the station for over eight years, 350 shows, and it is the most consistent thing in my life. Every Tuesday at 3, I know to be here in studio, but I also get the the privilege of meeting such amazing people, artists, artisans within the industry. I get to learn a new factoid, a, a new way of life from these wonderful people. And I hope you do too by listening and that you donate to our summer drive. Just go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate and click on the beating heart. And we'd even appreciate monthly recurring donations to any show on the network. You could designate to the food scene, the speakeasy, and that many more. Hello, this is Dana Cowan, and you're back with Speaking Broadly and my guest today, Anna Polanski. Uh, we've been talking at the uh, the top of the hour about fooding, trends in food, what's happening next, cava manger, um, and so much more. One reason that I was ecstatic to have um, Anna here was to talk about MP Shift. The Her uh, branding, I guess it's bigger than a branding company, but concept branding company that she has with her partner, Amy Morris. The two of them have shaped the landscape of food that you live in, whether you know it or not, as long as you're going to all of the hottest, newest restaurants like um, De Maria, um, for example. So I, I want to talk about the philosophy of uh, design and branding that infuses what you do every day. How do you guys think about um, the places that you work with and um, shaping the way they think about communicating with their customers? Right. So it goes back to why we started the agency, Amy and I. So we both had a foot in marketing and design, obviously, personally, through the fooding, working on sets and creative direction with mine and Alex, but also working with brands like MasterCard and San Pellegrino and Espresso. Um, and then Amy had done a lot of marketing strategy for Condé Nast, Richard Branson, huge brands, but also was really passionate with interior design, was doing home design on the side. So we came together at a moment where we wanted to do our own thing. And we looked at restaurants and we realized no one's really doing the A to Z in hospitality. You have great designers, great graphic people, great marketers, but no one's helping holistically. Why do you think that is? I just think historically food was never considered a brand. And I think people did not want to see it that way because they're scared it's going to become terrible and just the marketing product. But the truth is food is a brand now in our day and age and there is so much competition. So you might want to just think really thoroughly about what you're going to put out in the world. And it doesn't need to be fake and, and, and authentic, but you want to think it through from A to Z. Right. It seems like your goal is, uh, in fact deliberately to find the authenticity because otherwise it's about you and you're trying to not be about you. Exactly. So, so that's <laughs> then your life, then it's quite short. It's like, Oh, that's an MP shift restaurant, which you don't really want. Yeah. So that's exactly, that was the motto when we launched the agency was we don't want to have a signature style. All the famous designers in hospitality who do an amazing job, but they're really recognizable. 
Um, and it's probably good for their business for the first decade, but we don't think it's long term and we don't see it being successful for clients. You know, I always use um, Upland as an example. I went to Upland the first time Roman and Williams designed it. It really reminded me of the standard. If I didn't work in hospitality, I wouldn't know that it's actually owned by Steven Starr, not Andrew Villas. And I always thought, wow, if I was Steven Starr, I would be a little annoyed. <laughs> to be as beautiful as Upland is. So what we do at me and I is we always start with a brand Q&A. Every project we do, even if it's just a logo um, or just interiors, because we want to make sure we understand the client's vision and it's not about our fantasy. Um, and so for that reason, and I think you'll see in the next year as more projects open, Every project's quite different. De Maria is De Maria because it was doing this with Camille Becerra, who was really all about vibrant and California and healthy food. So you have this vibe in the restaurant. Uh, but we're doing a Miss Bar in Paris right now. It's going to be very different. Nothing to do with De Maria. I want to hear all about that. Um, do they love Mezcal in Paris the way they do in New they York? They don't know yet America? that they love it, but no. I think it's going <laughs> to <They> will. <laughs> Cocktails are bigger and bigger for sure. So. And uh, what are you thinking about for them? Well, in that case, you know, it, it's really a Parisian take on, on Mexican food and drinks. So we looked at Oaxaca, we looked at Mexico City. Um, they loved Berlin inspiration. But so as brand strategists, we're like, okay, you can't do a Berlin decor. <laughs> but sorry. But how do we, you know, how can we incorporate this raw material, this thing that they like about Berlin? So we looked into Mexican modernism, all the architecture, the Berrigan architecture and everyone else. That's actually a little Berlin-esque. And we mix that with the warmth of Oaxaca and more vibrant colors um so really there is a creative direction that matches their vision it's not just amy and anna coming in and saying oh we love terrazzo this year let's just yeah. do terrazzo you know <laughs> it is the year of terrazzo and tambor <laughs> yeah. I, I've, and i know you've said that and i completely agree which makes me sad right because i actually love terrazzo love it and there's so many amazing ways to use it until you see it everywhere and you're like oh shoot you know yeah. I mean, not that i'm designing restaurants but when i see them <laughs> no, totally. it kind of hurts you know to to see it used um without much uh, without much thought i love your sense of color i feel like if there's one thing when i think of a lot of your work is i don't know if you start with the color palette first but the colors are so clearly defined uh how do you decide on the colors that you choose and is that indeed a starting place for you in some way yeah i mean so after we've done the q a and define a creative direction we then start by showing moods and colors um so again it's very much informed by the research we did on xyz client story um and i do think we love colors but i also think we did this in reaction to the last 10 years of either brooklyn barnwood all white or the re more recent scandinavian australian all white trend um, I think we're always trying to react a little bit so that our clients stand out and, and are different. And people are afraid of color, but really color is fantastic. I, I find so. it so shocking that people are afraid of color. I feel like um, that'll change. And then there's, you know, there are the colors that we have seen so much of, like millennial pink, which um, I feel sort of, <laughs> I feel very, I feel very bad for that color. I know. You know, it, it was an okay color color and now has just been so co-opted we were talking about it at the office yesterday pink is such a great complementary color but now it's just the absolute rule at the office is it do not use pink right i mean it you just can't. can't because it has so much meaning yeah um that you know if you want it to be that meaning that's fine but it's that's a meaning that's somewhat tired um and there's so many other great colors in the world no absolutely so we love colors but also i would 
insist that because we don't want to have a signature style, we're happy to play with no colors. We mm -hmm. recently did a brand identity for a bakery in Paris called Le Petit Grand. Um, and that was the one thing he was like, love you guys, love the approach, but really too much colors for me. We're like, no worries. So we did this dark blue and, and white um, branding. Mm -hmm. We used the slice of bread and, and bibed it with ink and created those patterns. And there was another creative way to play with their branding without using color, but it's still unique and beautiful. So we can really adapt to any client. And then with um, with uh, Takosina, um, those are, they're like, how do you describe those colors? They're like high tone, off pitch Mexican. Um, <laughs> yeah, you're so good. Um, yeah, Takosina. So just to clarify, we didn't do the interiors. We did the, Brand, the, the branding. Branding, right. Um, the the and, logo, which is, um, it's mo it's mobile and um, yeah. dimensional. Yeah, that was a good surprise. It's super huge fun. sign. Yeah. Um, yeah, so Takosina, it's... And thanks for clarifying that. No, no worries. So, so Danny Meyer's first taco concept, Danny Meyer is really good at authenticity and a big part of the brief from him and his marketing team was we don't want to pretend we're Mexican. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be authentic. It's just going to be, it's going to be a homage to Mexico and we're not trying to ruin the cuisine entirely, but we will have a New York influence. So the creative direction our whole graphic team um, worked on was Baja California meets Futurismo. Um, Grace, who's one of our uh, first graphic designer in the team, she's excellent, came up with that direction. And the reason for that was Baja really, for us, says Mexico, summer, margaritas, great taco. Um, but then Futurismo, one of the founders of this graphic design movement, spent a lot of time in New York. And it really talked to this Brooklyn kind of rebellious, revolutionary vibe. So mixing the two gave this branding. And so the font you, you talk about for Takosina is very much futurist, futurism inspired. And the colors are inspired by Joseph Albert's book about Mexico. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Now I have to go back and look at that book. Which happens to be one of Danny Meyer's favorite. That was random. Um, so again, everything we do, we try to make sure it's connected to the topic. Okay, I'm a little, I'm a little <laughs> speechless on that. That's that is so many interesting things coming together. Uh, so, one thing that I read about your Instagram was that you know you're you're using it to explore themes, which I think is a fantastic way to use Instagram because Instagram, just in terms of emptiness, vapidity, and <laughs> um, you know scary sameness, all going for. Um, you know, the number of, of likes scares me. So I, I'd love to hear about your thinking behind that, where you find the resources to um, to explore, let's say, negative space. Like I loved, you know, seeing all these different examples of <laughs> negative space and using it as a way to express the work that you do um, in thinking rather than just simply like producing. Yeah. So, I mean, I'm glad you noticed it. I think we're probably one of the only ones to do this mini zine um, instead of just sharing our work. And the idea was when we started, it was just Amy and I. And we were like, oh, it takes so much time to feed the Instagram feed and we don't have a portfolio yet. And uh, we were trying to find a process to make it easier. So I think a Amy came up with this idea. Actually, she was like, let's just have one theme every week so that it's, you know, automatic. And um, then Julie, our first employee, joined the team. So she would create the themes and we would validate every week. And now we have a team of almost 14. Oh, my goodness. So, Congratulations. That's so... So it kind of rotates and, and everyone contributes. And we try to have as much graphics as interiors. But I think it's just, it's great. It's a great process for us. It also gives us a lot of inspiration. 
Um, and I think, I mean, we hope to be looked at, to be looked to for inspiration, not just the latest work we did. So, and um, in the, the things that you're thinking about there, where where do you find the most inspiration? Uh, art often I mean are there new artists new architects I'm always I'm always looking to take the shortcut to knowledge which is really <laughs> part of the reason I love having these conversations because I talk to people who just know so much more than um than I do you right, know, who are right. plugged in so you know if someone wants to explore the art scene right now like what should they look at or architecture like happily Barragon old enough that I'm totally <laughs> plugged no, into <laughs> Barragon not breaking news on Barragon yeah, I mean, I think, uh, I mean, I could mention a few. We recently worked with this girl, um, Matteo Perota, for a restaurant we helped with in Houston. Um, we work a lot with those two artists called Dylan Dylan, who do amazing work. Um, and how would you describe it? Um, the first one I would say is more on trend right now. It's very abstract, uh, you know, kind of Matisse-inspired uh, type of shapes. Um, Dylan, Dylan, um, they do all sorts of things. And we work a lot on custom pieces with them. They did the paintings at the Maria, but they do everything else. Uh, ben Nason, an amazing photographer we've loved working with. So again, it really depends on the client. Um, but as far as inspiration, we really try hard to get inspiration out of the food world. Mm-hmm. Um, and so a couple of things is every Monday we have what we call Mindful Monday with the team. And we ask everyone from the admin intern to the interior designer to share inspirations. And it could be something they saw in the street. It could be something they saw when they were traveling. could be a set they liked when watching a movie. We really try to have everyone go out of Pinterest and Instagram to find stuff to look at. Um, the real world. Amazing. The real world. And, and that's really what Amy and I are trying to bring to restaurants. We feel like for decades, restaurant design has been about creating sets. It's going to be a French restaurant. It's going to be a Mexican restaurant. And we feel like it's wrong. It's not the way you should eat. And, and really, a restaurant should feel more like a house than a set. So we love to incorporate that imperfection. And Let's talk yeah. about imperfection. A small obsession of mine, uh, partly because I feel the way that I do, I do about Instagram. And uh, whether it's your perfect life, which... I just, um, you know, I find hard to believe, or your perfect bowl, which I find hard to accomplish. Um, you know, I'm curious where you think imperfection intersects with uh, acceptability, right? Because there's uh, some imperfection that's acceptable and some that's just but ugly <laughs> and a turnoff. What do you think? I mean, it's a hard thing to define. I feel like it needs to feel right. It seems weird, but... When we go in restaurants and it's a sea of two tops and everything's symmetrical and everything's the latest trend, I mean, how could you feel invited and, and cozy in there? Uh, on the other end, you don't want it to be so messy that it's dirty and, and not appealing. But, you know, one example is at De Maria, there is this wall of tiles. So De Maria was a refurbished. We took over a space that you, there was a French bistro and it was all subway tiles all over our nightmare. <laughs> um, and so... We removed most of them, but there was one one uh, wall we left by the kitchen, and we just removed the wine shelves, and so everything cracked. And I think most designers would have said, "Well, this is terrible. We need to retile it." Instead, Amy and I said, "Let's just fill in the cracks with little tiles and pieces of brass." We thought we're in Nolita. It used to be an artist area. An artist would have never retiled, and actually, in your home, you would not just retile the whole wall. Um, at the end of the day, it's one of the most Instagram <laughs> detailed, and every client now asks to have this. Um, so I think, yeah, it's, we knew it was going to look nice. We knew it was going to be 
still clean and design forward, but I think that imperfection makes the space more um, real and approachable. There's a Japanese word for it. I mean, it's like... Yeah, they do it by, yeah, when they... The, it's the gold, the gold, gold. Yeah, liquid gold. That was a bit inspired by this. Right. So. Good. <laughs> Again, happened yeah. before, like, you know, 2000. I'm just right on that. <laughs> so, um, and when you look, when you look ahead, um, what are, what do you see in the world of design that feels new to you? Like, is there a, a country, a city, a place, um, a person who you feel exemplifies uh, a little bit of what's next? Because I feel there's, um, you know, even in the imperfection and trying to court some personality and court a sense of home, which I find I find I'm most curious now about the places that court a sense of sense of home. It's where I want to be. It makes me feel at, at leisure. It makes me. It's usually not quite as loud. Yeah. Um, so I get to have an intimate conversation, which is always my goal. Clear here <laughs> and, and everywhere else. Um, but I feel like, you know, and and that tool um, th- that tool pass. Yeah, um, I mean, I think the reason why Latin America is so big right now in the hospitality world is somehow because of this. I mean, also because they have incredible food and chefs, but I do feel like there is this more natural, organic, generous relationship to food. Um, Even if you, well, I haven't been to the new uh, Pujol, but I had been to the old one and whether you like the food or not, or it's just, I thought that was so homey. It's like you had Enrique's favorite little paintings on the wall mm-hmm. and the kitchen was visible. And I feel like we're going more towards this. We talk a lot about P. Franco with our clients, which is this little wine bar, wine shop in London. Um, and it started as a wine shop and he then added a little hot plate, a bit like Achilles heel. Um, and so having this direct access to the chef and being able to stand while he cooks, I think more and more people are going towards this yeah. generous feel. Okay, generosity. I like I like generosity as a, as a as a theme um, as a theme overall. On the show, I always ask for um, a woman who has inspired you, someone who's in the hospitality industry, could be anywhere at all, just to pay it forward. We were talking before about uh, you know representation and how hard that is, and even though you know women haven't had nearly the struggle as some other. Um, minorities are still not enough women um, celebrated. So, is there someone who you uh, would like to bring to light? Well, a, a woman I really admire, but everyone I think agrees with me, is Gabriela Camara, who owns Contramar in uh, Mexico City, my favorite restaurant in the world. Um, no kidding. Okay, that's, that's a really big claim. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I can talk about it. She also owns Cala in San Francisco, and additionally to being just the most fun and warm person. I'm pretty impressed. She started Contramar when she was in her 20s. It's a huge restaurant. She has the same staff since 20 years. Um, Kala is a huge success. She employs mostly um, former prisoners. She's trying to help them um, going back to our society. Um, and the food's fantastic. And she, knows, she also knows how to play the game and being at all the awards and doing the right collaborations with Squirrel and so on <laughs> and so forth. Um, but she has incredible work ethics. And I feel like if every chef that are as hot and cool as her try to help the society the way she does, there would be a better world, probably. <laughs> a, a better society overall. Yeah. Your path to where you are... Um, I don't know if it feels linear to you. To, to me, it seems like you picked up things along the way. 
are there lessons that people taught you things that someone said to you long ago and it just is on repeat in your mind um, that you want to share uh, with the listeners? Yeah, I mean, I think um, one thing Alex told me at Le Footing a while ago, it's funny, we were talking about a, a book um, that a former Le Footing person was going to write about sausages. Um, she's incredible. Her name is Elvira, and she's an amazing food journalist. Um, and I was 19, and I was like, really? But who's going to buy a book about sausages? I mean, it's <laughs> such a weird idea, you know? And he was like, Anna, the, if we only did things because they're going to work commercially, nothing would get done. Um, and the success comes after. And I think I kept that in mind. You know, I never chose my jobs or the companies I started because they were going to work. The MP shift was not said to work when we started. The model didn't really exist in hospitality. Mm -hmm. People didn't believe that Amy or I could do any design because we didn't have traditional backgrounds. They thought we were just PR people doing fun events. I kind of remember um, that. You proved them wrong. Awesome. Yeah, and they, and they all told us the first year, they were like, but really, what's your strength? And who does what? Because no way you're doing 360. And I think now people come to us for that reason. So... Yeah, I would say just do things because they feel good and relevant to you. Don't, don't do them because it's going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, personal brands. A lot of people are, are told or convinced that they need to grow their personal brand. Um, you know, I wonder if you have an opinion on that and how to use whatever levers there are, because there are so many, to make yourself known and respected for something specific since you guys have done such a great job of that yeah i think actually i mean speaking of trends i think more and more the trend of the chef being the king is gonna fade out a little bit i think a lot of people are tired of this of this and the chef tables and the 50 best and all this bullshit um so i think more and more it's going to be about creating a, a brand for your venue and your experience but it's not sustainable to put your chef forward all the time as a restauranter. Um, and what about, because so many of the listeners are, um, you know, they're not in this industry or um, they're, not a, they're not a restaurant. They're just a, a person trying to get known. Yeah. From all of the experience that you've had, uh, what would you say? About? About how, if you're just, if you want to be known for a thing, how would you approach that? Because you can do it, yeah. but you still need to be known for it, I guess. And I think the first step is define who you are, whether it's you personally or your restaurant or your, the experience you're trying to convey. This is why we start with a questionnaire, because even the best chef in the world doesn't know how to talk about what he or she does. So it's really important to take that time, even if it's a few months, to say, OK, this in one line, this is who I am. If I have two minutes in an elevator, this is how I talk about it. Here are my missions. Here are my values. Um, you know, and it could be five slides, but once you have that, I think everything you're going to do will be relevant and people will understand. What are the questions? It's anywhere from what's your concept to how do you situate yourself compared to the competition to what, what's your favorite music and if the New York Times was to write a headline about you, what would it be? You know, all sorts of questions. One of my favorites in that zone is um, if there was a billboard, it's two um, variations on the same theme, but if there was a billboard, um, you know, of your, that represented your life, like what would your billboard be? <laughs> um that's I actually, I, I figured that out for myself. But do you have, what would that be for you? Uh, it's hard. I need to think about it. I hope, I hope I'm associated to, 
to pleasure and, and enjoyment of life. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, I decided that mine would be on the positive side because people tell me this, like, they come to me for coaching or mentoring and I, I really enjoy doing that. And a lot of times people express the things that are really troubling to them, um, the obstacles that they've faced. And I just feel like there's always a positive side. So my billboard would definitely be on the positive side. Um, it's, yeah. you know, like dot, dot, dot. That's great. <laughs> like, I, don't, yeah. I don't know. Totally. I don't always know what the, like, <laughs> but I can, I can usually, I can usually, you know, search and, and find that. Um, well, thank you. It has been such a pleasure to have you, um, on the show and, um, I enjoy seeing your work and now I understand understand a little bit more behind the scenes and uh, all you listeners that is what's so amazing about heritage radio network that i get to talk to incredible people like anna i get i get to learn so in order for you to learn um in order to share really human stories about challenges faced successes um the the pleasure of being in this uh, world of food and we're doing a summer fun drive uh, between now and uh, July 31st, we're trying to raise $25,000, um, which is, you know, it's a lot of money and can help us do here at Heritage Radio Network a lot of great work. So if you um, if you go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash donate, um, if, you, if you donate some money, you can get some really fun swag. Um, among them, my favorite thing is the HRN Beer Cozy, because I didn't even know that you could spell cozy, K-O-O-Z-I-E. That's cool, I guess. You're nodding. Like, you knew you spelled no, cozy. No, I, I discovered this when we were doing the branding for Tecos as well. It's <laughs> used to me. So. It's, it's, it's a thing. And you can be part of that very thing for, um, for 60 bucks on uh, Heritage Radio Network. So I hope you enjoyed the show. If you'd like to follow uh, Anna or MP Shift, they're amazing on the channel. So do you want to say where we can uh, follow and find you? Yeah, the MP Shift, it's T-H-E-M-P, the word shift. Um, and I'm at Anna, A-N-N-A-P-O-L-O-N-S. And you guys all know where to find me. I'm at FW Scout on Twitter and Instagram. Love hearing from you. And, um, you know, hope you'll subscribe, listen to the podcast more, send suggestions my way if there's someone you think that I need to interview. I always love suggestions. And I'll be back next week. Have a great week. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.